Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. This week's episode is with Joe Rodriguez. Joe is an experienced psychologist specializing in cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT, health psychology, and she has also taken these skills into TV consultation roles working alongside Bear Grylls and the like. As always, I really enjoyed this episode, so let's get into it. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Very excited. <laughs> it's, it's good. Kind it's, of. It's good to have you on here. It's been a few years since we've obviously caught up, uh, involved in different projects in the past, but really keen to have you on here and to discuss your profession, dive into psychology and different aspects of, of mindset. So going firstly into your career and your experience would be great. And then we can also get into some of the questions that have come in and equally discuss how we can be uh, yeah, how your experience can be a benefit to others. So firstly, how did you get into psychology and why did you pursue it as a career? So I, I've always done it since I, you know, from A-levels at school, like probably the why is easier to start with. I just, I just made it, I don't know why, I just made a decision early on that I just wanted to do a job that I enjoyed. And I figured if I always chose because I never sort of followed traditional pathways into psychology. I never didn't really follow traditional pathways on anything that I've done really. But I've just tended to like to do what I enjoy because I figure if I enjoy it, then I put more energy into it. You know, I didn't do particularly well at my GCS. No, I did do well at my GCSEs. I didn't do very well in my A-levels is what they were called back then. I don't think they're called the same thing anymore. But I think it's because I didn't really choose A-levels that I enjoyed. I chose ones that I thought I should do, although psychology was one of them. I did enjoy that. And then after that, I kind of decided, like, if I want to do well at uni, I need to make sure I just enjoy what I do and then I'll enjoy the studying, which I did. And then I ended up doing quite well at uni. And then um, I still didn't know what I wanted to do leaving uni. My mum was a psychiatric nurse, always worked in mental health. So I'd always been exposed to that and I'd done lots of work. I'd done some work experience with her. I'd done work experience in hospitals. I'm quite, um, I like being around people and I like working with people. So I kind of knew that I wanted that kind of profession. And then my mum would talk about different, actually my mum said, I was, I always thought I'd be a nurse because my mum was a nurse and then a psychiatric nurse. My mum always said to me, whatever you do, don't be a nurse. Do not be a psychiatric nurse. <laughs> like, I was like, damn it, I don't know what else to do then. I just, um, so, and actually she said to me, oh, I don't think you'll like psychology though. You know, it's quite boring. You just talk to people all day. And, and um, But actually when I studied psychology, I got a job on a mental health inpatient unit and that was really just to get some experience because what you learn early on in careers in psychology is that to get a job in psychology, you have to have experience in psychology. It's really hard. You have to have loads of experience, but no one will give you experience because you've not done anything in mental health. So you have to start off with, you know, volunteering on phone lines and working in mental health places in terms of the admin side of things to try and eke, like try and edge your foot in the door. Um, so I did all of that and then got a job uh, as a what was called a graduate mental health worker back in the day. And I was very fortunate. I feel like I was very fortunate that it was a job 
that they have now in um, the NHS, which is called a Psychological Wellbeing Practitioner. Um, but it was a brand new initiative that the government had set, and it was really to try and get more psychological therapy um, readily available to people in the community when they go and visit their GP. You know, there's no such thing as going to the GP and just being able to access psychological therapies as there are now. Um, so I got a job as a graduate mental health worker and that was I had a really lovely boss that was really visionary and really supportive and which is actually quite unique in the NHS I hate to say you know because there's so much red tape around everything so I was involved in setting up the service still didn't know what to do still didn't want to follow the traditional path of clinical psychology um I don't know why I think because there's a lot of um it's quite niche and um I just didn't really want to be pigeonholed into something and I didn't I wanted to do something a bit broader so anyway um, I actually wanted to do sports psychology but my boss I wanted to do a master's in it but my boss at the time said look you can't make psychology sports psychology fit that role but you can make health psychology and it was kind of the closest I could get to being funded to do something similar to sports psychology um, and anyway I ended up loving it you know so health psychology is using psychological approaches to work with people who have physical health conditions and then as part of that I was involved in you know setting up and running groups in uh, physiotherapy departments for people who had chronic and persistent pain and um, alongside that I was also working in um, a mental health service mental health promotion working to try and um, and, and the improving access to psychological therapies program and then I ended up getting uh, so I did that master's and then I ended up getting offered a job at the university where I studied um, as a graduate mental health worker. They asked me to come back and teach on that programme. So I then went back to the uni and I got a job there teaching and I ended up being the director of studies on that programme. I was there for quite a long time. But also whilst there, I did a course in CBT so that I could do more like one-to-one -one therapy, set up my own business. So I guess it's I've just been able to pick and choose things that I really like but have also had the support of a lot of people to you know it's actually hard to get a career in psychology um and it's a lot of studying so you have to yeah put you have to be prepared for that I guess but also enjoy what you do and I think I've just always done it because I love what I do I think that makes it easier yeah so that's a great thing to aim for really isn't it if you actually enjoy the work you're going to be more passionate about it you're going to give more as part of your day and um, I also noticed you were involved with some TV work how did that come about off of the back of working at the university or was it something else that you got involved with no so that again so when I was um like mid-20s I got asked if I want because I've always been involved in I've always liked doing fitness as well I've always liked keeping sporty and I belong to running clubs and athletic clubs and um I got offered the chance to do a trek across the desert working as a in a psychological kind of role supporting young people doing the trek across the desert and they were trying to raise money for a local hospice so I did that and then it was actually somebody that was working on that that knew somebody in tv that was looking for somebody to get involved in you know it's kind of like you know someone that knows someone that knows yeah, someone. yeah always is yeah <laughs> and um so the, there was a TV company that was looking for someone to go on a Bear Grylls show and they wanted a psychologist to help because it was basically doing exposure work for phobias. So they wanted a psychologist that was fit and active that could do the graft, if you like, and go on the expeditions, but work behind the scenes. Um, 
so I just I interviewed for that and um I feel like I was very lucky they just said yeah like we think you're gonna fit come along and do that so I got to work with Bear Grylls and we went to Mexico and we went to Italy and made some yeah really amazing sort of friends and lifelong memories so a lot of fun threw me way out of my comfort zone (laughs) was that like a consultation role so you would um help them in terms of with basically the younger people on the courses was that your main role so my role was really from start to finish so I had to um, do the psychological assessments of the contributors going on to make sure that they knew what they were doing that you know the phobia was real that um, sort of but also to explain the process so they weren't just sort of it so it wasn't sort of experimental with people's mental health if you like there was actually a psychological foundation to it that was based on theory right did you have to actually test their phobia as in expose them to it or just check no, it was more just, you know, I did questionnaires and assessments. Okay. Yeah, like, how afraid is, are you of snake. this spider? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I put it on your face? Yeah, because that's what they're going to do. <laughs> yeah, Brilliant. so, um, yeah, and it was just, you know, watching Bear every day and just, and I, did, I tried to train Bear up a little bit as well in terms of, you know, knowing the psychological theory behind exposure and then just chatting to him at the end of the day and he'd come over and say you know was that okay is that and I'm like, yeah that's really good and you know he's very good at that stuff anyway but it was just really safeguarding and then providing follow-up care for the contributors afterwards you know because it's a quite a unique experience that they went through and it was just kind of making sure that they weren't just kind of put into the fire and then left you know yeah and, and now you're working out different practices as well around the UK yeah so I've done um, some consultancy work for various um, organisations, bits and pieces, but predominantly my work is, well, pre-COVID, I had three clinics, one in uh, yeah London and two in Surrey. And post-COVID now, a lot of my work's remote. I've gone back to one of my clinics in Surrey um, with a view to going back to all of them, you know, as soon as I can, really. So was that switched to more online stuff as well, especially during COVID? Was that something that you had to do more of or is it quite hard in your job to communicate with people online? Is that obviously when you're in a room with someone, there's that we obviously are dealing with different senses. There's more of a personal approach when you're actually sat next to someone. Is, is that something you found challenging or, or not? Yes, that yes and no, I'd say. A lot of people are very used to, you know, talking over a computer now and talking. So a lot of people actually are okay with it, but you did there is something that's lost in translation, it, you know, across a screen. Of course it is a barrier. And so I would say there's a small pocket of clients that probably it's been harder for, you know, particularly for example working with trauma. Um it's really hard to do that over you know on a computer screen or I I can't do it over the telephone you just you have to be more present with somebody you have to help the person feel safe and it's really hard to do that just at the end of a phone um you know you can do a little bit perhaps with a lot of prep work on a screen but it's much much better much easier to be able to do that stuff so I think there's quite a few people out there in my experience that have probably not had the right kind of care the best kind of care that they could have because it just wasn't physically available yeah it seems to be quite a common theme in this last year it's almost like people are catching up now on these things that had to be put by the side but now it's like this huge catch-up I'm sure you're busy as well I'm sure that's been something yeah well that's it I mean typically summer's a bit quieter people go away you know 
it's not like that at the moment. There's really? just been no, there hasn't been any. When lockdown first started, actually, it was quiet, and I think there was a lot of people that just didn't really. You know, people were saying there's some comfort in it in a way about people felt safe indoors. So lots of people with anxiety, for example, their anxiety went down. Um, people who were sort of work related stress that went right down. Even though there were a lot of external stresses going on, I, I found on the whole people got a bit better mentally for the short term but then the longer lockdown went on and then moving out of lockdown it's really sort of rapidly gone up a bit and and now it's kind of plateaued at quite a high level I'm I'm finding. Do you think that's because people have had to start going inward more because obviously uh, boredom or isolation tends to like when people are captured for example in the military that time in isolation can be quite therapeutic for some, but on the opposing side, for those with ex- pre-existing trauma that they may have distracted themselves with, do you think that then starts to come to the surface? Could, could that be a reason? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think, you know, there's, like you said, there's a safety in going inwards, that a felt sense anyway, but it's not real life. And then when you try and come out into real life, all of this stuff comes up to the surface and it comes quite quickly and gives that sort of immediate sense of danger or threat. And I think also because COVID is still out there and is not going anywhere and some people who were very hypervigilant are still very hypervigilant and it's very hard to help them to come down knowing that COVID is not going anywhere. It, you know, it, yeah. So I'd say, yeah, that probably that's quite a good um, way of looking at it. It's hard to deal with a threat that you can't see, isn't it? It's, it's very similar to how we found in the military where so-called conventional warfare would be, uh, say, rewind 70, 80 years. And previously to that, there was different uniforms. It was very much one versus the other. As time went on, all these things become... Uh, quite blurry you don't know who the enemy is you don't know who's on your side who's not so it's almost like that invisible threat adds even more stress because you're hyper vigilant so with this it's an invisible thing people are on edge if they see things and obviously the media isn't um doesn't help the situation does it no not at all not at all you know and we were we were discussing that weren't we just before recording that I, I say the same thing to my clients that you were saying that I just advise people not to watch the news and, and don't switch like you're not going to miss anything by not watching and I think it just increases that sense of threat and danger and makes you feel like there's something out there that's going to kind of let, like attack and you have to be on guard all the time whereas the reality is like yes to some extent there are still a lot of un- unknowns but the threat is not as high as perhaps it was back then and we have to learn to adjust and adapt and sort of learn to tolerate a certain amount of uncertainty otherwise we, our life just gets smaller and smaller and and to put it in context i mean this is the start of august 2021 so if anyone's listening to this in two three years time now you know why we're talking about this right now so it's, <laughs> yeah so it's um i mean hopefully it's done by hopefully it's sort of quite different by then i hope so um I mean, that's brought me on to the next point is what do you find are the most, how do you say, common challenge, what are common challenges you face? And what do you tend to find that people seem to struggle with more? Is there certain things that say a man tends to suffer with more or a lady? Do you find that there's certain things maybe around um, childbirth and sort of depression post childbirth, all these different things that come to the surface? Do you find these different challenges are subjected more so to 
one demographic or the other or do you find that certain things are more common just generally that you see in practice now that's quite yeah that's an interesting one I think the client the type of clients that I see I guess I probably have a skewed picture of the people that are presented to me you know majority of people are referred through like friends of friends or insurance companies or GP surgery so there's a so the people that I see are sort of I'd say like middle 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 range I don't see the extremes at either end particularly so I don't see people that like considered the worried well that are probably struggling with their mental health but not seeking support and I don't tend to see any more not in my current role the the top of the higher end the people that need additional services and support so the people that I'd see I'd say I see a lot of anxiety and and it goes through phases you know at the moment I see a lot of anxiety and a lot of low self-esteem and I don't and there is some low mood in there but at the moment not so much possibly because it's summer low mood always goes down in the summer um but I see a lot of people struggling with confidence, self-esteem and anxiety at the moment. Um, you know, I'd say a few months ago, I was probably seeing quite a lot of people with health anxiety. Um, and I am also starting to see a lot of trauma, which I think is, you know, the, the pandemic has traumatized people and has brought out traumas that people have suffered. So, yeah, so I'd say I don't really think I see a difference between men and women I think I probably got about a third of my caseload I'd say is men two-thirds women I don't see a huge difference necessarily at the moment sometimes I do but I'd say at the moment the general presentation of men and women is quite similar that I'm seeing yeah the reason I asked as well is because coming from a military background and seeing forms of um, extreme trauma where people are injured or lose their life or lose limbs and then the same in the fire service turning up to think incidents where people don't come out of that situation where you might take them through from living and then end up working on them. I saw quite a few men that dealt with trauma and never actually spoke to anyone. So I, I wondered, it was interesting that you mentioned the ratios of sort of a third to two thirds. Do you think as men that still exists where women are a little bit more open to speaking about their feelings and guys tend to hold these things in a bit more? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I still see it. And I think, you know, it's hard because it, there is no doubt that it affects men of, in the same way. There is no doubt about it in that men need the help in the same way that women do, potentially even more because it's not talked about. And one of the, you know, with, with these things, one of the most helpful thing is just being able to process it and talk about it and understand it. And it doesn't change the situation, but it changes how we feel about the situation and ourselves and our place within that and then because of that our brains are just able to settle with it find a different way of settling with it which is calmer maybe or a bit more at peace or so yeah I think I don't know I'd say that I'd say the ratio of men to women is probably increasing I think it's it's very slowly changing um but there's still a way to go I think there's still a stigma around men opening up mentor even you know I see in clinic they kind of it, it takes a while to you know kind of for a man really to kind of know that it's okay to you know experience these things and that it's totally normal and that you know that they're, they're coming to me to talk about it and that's okay so yeah 
it's why it was, it's a huge reason why I was keen to get you on here as well is, is to try and help address these. So if, if someone was struggling with something like this, they, they do know that there are people out there that could assist because sometimes it, when you're in that low self-esteem, I'm sure we've all, people listening as well, I'm sure everyone can relate to a time in their life where they felt so low, you feel like no one else would understand. So you, you feel like by telling someone, they still won't understand your situation. Because you think, no, no, they haven't been through it. How, what do they know? Yeah, they do. And also, I think there's a sense of what can talk, what difference can talking about it make? Like, what what good is that going to do? I'm going to talk about it, but I'm still going to be stuck in this situation. I'm still going to feel this way. It's hard to. It is hard to really comprehend how talking about it can help. I think you know you almost have to go through the process to believe it. I think you know it. it and and I see, you know, people come all the time, men and women actually, and come and, and I talk about, you know, how would life be different if you'd found this helpful? What would you be doing? What do you expect from this? And often people say, I don't know. And actually, I don't really see how talking can help. You know, I'm not really sure. But it's the process that, you know, that a person goes through. And I think for men, I think it's recognizing that, you know, it can make a difference, a significant difference. And it's just trying to get over that barrier of talking. Because I think another challenge is talking about it can make a person feel weak, even though it takes an awful lot of courage and strength to be able to talk about it. It's very difficult when you are that person to see how much strength that that takes. And sometimes there can be, a, it can bring up a feeling of being weak, which a lot of men struggle with. Um, so so there are quite a few hurdles that you have to get past but often it's only one or two sessions and then you'll pass them that quick really yeah yeah well do you think the trust element comes into it do you think that it's almost like building is, is that part of your process or, or many people within your profession would you say that that you're building the rapport the trust up in the initial session so they feel comfortable to open up to you in the first place yeah yeah definitely and there's a lot of research that shows as well it's you know it's not it's not the, the, there's a lot of different types of therapy out there and they're all, you know, they, they suit some people more than others, but actually the most important thing is the therapeutic relationship. It's how well you connect with the person that you're speaking to and how open you're able to be with that person. There's no point coming if you're, you know, ashamed or you feel that you have to lie or hide things from your therapist. That's the one space that you, you should never feel that um, because you know, it, it needs to be a safe space. So yeah, it's often sort of building. I mean, one or two sessions, I'd say on the whole, some people take a bit longer, you know, it might take six, eight, 10 sessions. But in general, once you start and you can connect with the person that you're talking to, and you feel safe and respected, and um, then it, it actually, it's like, it, it starts to feel more okay. And then it starts tumbling out. <laughs> I mean, personally, I found I, I had people around me in the past where I always felt I could talk to whether it was my family about stuff or my wife. I always tended to find in the initial stages in your head, it is always worse than when you've dealt with the problem. Once you've said it or once you've, you've actioned it, it, you go, why did I not say this five years ago? Why did I, why did I not deal with this straight away? Um, I used to find it work as well sometimes years ago. I also think, why don't I just pick up the phone and address that problem straight away instead of letting it fester for time, for months, and then it just becomes worse and it snowballs. And I tended to find, because I had an emotional attachment to the scenario, I had an emotion 
attached to that that single time in in space and an interpretation of how I felt I looked to others maybe that also exacerbated the problem so it was trying to disconnect myself from the emotion and and stand back and say, does it really matter? Is it really a big deal? Yeah, exactly. I think that's a hundred percent it. You know, it's more, the difficulty of getting your foot in the door is that the thought of doing it is so much harder. When you actually do it, often, you know, the sense of relief is huge. The sense of the the, the realization, like you said, said of like oh, once I did it, actually wasn't as hard. And and often the problems don't always seem as big as well you know once you start opening it up and exploring it you know but it's a bit it feels a bit like Pandora's box that you know it's this thing that you just don't want to open it feels frightening you don't really know what's in there you know there's stuff in there but you're just a bit too afraid to lift the lid and you think it's going to be like a jack-in-the-box and everything's going to splurge out and then you're never going to be able to put it back in again that's what it feels like but once you actually go and you open the box you realize you're like oh okay I can take this one out and this one out and I can choose which one I take out and which one I don't and eventually I've gone through the whole box and realize okay fine I can deal with this now um but there's a lot of fear around you know well you know it's like there's a monster in that closet I just don't want to see it yeah keep it locked that definitely happened to a lot of people I used to work with sort of the old school firefighters or the or the policemen that I know served in, in the Met, they, I was always told they had a box, they locked it and they pushed it away. And the problem is what I did see is that a lot of people with that mindset, that mentality tended to get quite ill later in life. It's almost like they ended up with heart attacks. It, don't get me wrong. Um, many things we talked about in the podcast, it could be any one of those scenarios, like more stress leads to poor sleep, poor diet, less exercise, all these sorts of things, bad relationships. The other thing I, I definitely noticed from being abroad is how the body stored trauma. That's something I, I, I was very, how do you say, apprehensive of in terms of accepting that process coming from my, my military background. I'm like, oh yeah, psh, yeah, it's body storing trauma. It's all in the head. And then when you start to get into some of these more therapeutic practices or holistic practices, you go, oh, whoa, 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 whoa what is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hang on a minute. <laughs> is that something you've noticed with working with people, yeah. like people who get body work? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I, I see that quite a lot in my role as a health psychologist, you know, because I see a lot of people who have chronic long term pain I don't I don't tend to see a huge number of people that have you know um for example coronary heart disease or um cancer or you know I do see some people like that have these conditions but I see a lot of people actually that have pain that's got no explanation or that should have been fixed with surgery but isn't it hasn't gone anywhere and often what I find is that working through traumas anxieties you know learning how to sort of let go of tension and how to activate you know your rest and digest system as well as you know because your body is so under fire with stress all the time that I've seen lots of people be pain-free after therapy and that's not that's never a goal of therapy it's never a goal to be pain-free because we can you can never guarantee that it's actually going to have a physical effect but more often than not it does and it's because somehow the body does hold on to that and it manifests as these pains and tensions that just don't go away and I think you're right that 
And also I think something else that can happen is like the maladaptive coping strategies as well that, you know, I've locked it away, I don't go there. It doesn't go anywhere. And in fact, it gets bigger. You just ignore it more. And then it tends to, you know, maybe alcohol, other kinds of drugs, you know, people tend to go down that route in an attempt to escape the feeling because they're not able to deal with, you know, that monster in the closet. Yeah, I mean, personally, I self-medicate with fitness. Um, and you've I've talked about it previously, but then you find yourself six hours away from home on a road bike thinking, was I actually out here to do training or to escape something? And it normally was that mental escape, earphones in, cycling with music on, anything but to sit still. Uh, and we were talking about meditation actually in the previous podcast um, with Josh and a few others about the importance of stillness because without letting that water settle you can't see through to the bottom you can't see what you're dealing with because it's always always being moved around and it's like oh okay nothing exists there yep i dealt with this problem yeah exactly and i think that and that sort of um i'd say that's probably something also that the pandemic in some ways has helped some people with and in some ways hasn't i think because i think the pandemic has forced people to slow down and so I think there are a large number of people that have benefited from that, even though they've gone through a process of feeling really uncomfortable with it. There's people there that actually are now enjoying a slightly slower pace of life, which is actually why then anxiety has gone up coming out of lockdown, because the speed of life has rapidly increased. And even though, you know, there's lots out there saying, you know, you only do what you feel you need to, don't feel pressured, this, that and the other, you know. You can't help it, you know. When the when the world opens up, you can't. You just feel bombarded, and everything is like it's an assault on your senses again. Um, so there there was an element of lockdown that was quite helpful, I think, because it forced people to slow down and face things that perhaps they didn't want to. And once they'd gone through that process, they realised actually, like you said, if I stop and I'm still, I realise that what I'm looking at is like the bottom of this water and it's actually really pretty, you know, like, Oh, I can see the fish swimming and I can see. Whereas if you're just constantly churning that water up, you feel like, Oh, it's good. It's good. It's good. Cause I'm, you know, I'm doing something, I'm doing something. I'm not thinking about it, but actually you just, your body doesn't know when to stop. Yeah. A friend of mine spent a bit of time uh, in, in prison in his younger years. And I've got family members that have done over 30 years service in, in different services. And, they don't want to leave because it's almost like that institutionalization where they they're forced to do things at certain times and it's like your freedom exists within x hour like go and do what you want within this hour but it report back to us and there is some security in that i think you get to a point when i was on ship or in in afghan it was quite a simple process life was very simple and i actually enjoyed elements of that then you get released into this this wide world it's like right getting bombarded from every different screen with buy this buy this buy this be scared of this take this and then you've got all the bills to pay then you need to supply for a family and multiple roles within a family as well um i was actually going to talk to you about this because i'm sure you've noticed it that obviously you're a mum to to three children do you feel there's more demand on people now especially as parents to provide and be a partner a parent a, a colleague like working from home all, all these different roles that exist and trying to be excellent at every single one of them uh, do you find a lot of people struggle with that concept and, and maybe you've got something from your own experience as a parent as well yeah I do I think it's really difficult I see I see it a lot I think 
because it's all very blurred you know there's lots of information out there also to tell us how to do it right there's a feeling like we have to do it perfectly so there's there is pressure and it is difficult and it and everything blurs into everything else so it's very hard to kind to keep things boundaried and to keep things separate you know certainly you know personally for example I'm doing this podcast with you in my garage because my kids are out there and I can't go out there and I can't go in the house because if they hear me in the house they come in they're like hi mommy and it's just like you know and I can't do that with my clinical work either um but then also there's no downtime so me leaving here like normally you'd have a commute or you'd have some time where you can decompress I'm straight into the house and it's like whoa you know an assault on now I've got three kids jumping on me saying, can we play a game? Can I have dinner? Can we do? And it's like, oh my goodness. Like, so yeah. And I think a lot of people are experiencing that, but then, you know, you go on Instagram, for example, and then you say, oh, you know, as a parent, we need to take time out. And if a child shows this emotion, then we need to sit with that emotion. And we need, and it's like, oh my God, like, I feel like I want to scream. It's really hard. So there's a very common shared experience there where it is difficult and it's, you know, it's about trying to a become okay with recognizing that you can only do your best, and in in every area of your life, whether that's your work, your as a parent, you know, in fitness or you know whatever, with as a friend, as a mum, as a wife, whatever, and kind of accepting that's okay, and you know, and modeling that, and trying to set some boundaries, and trying to find time to decompress, find time to you know, find ways of limiting work, fine. But it, recognizing also that it's not easy. It's, it's really hard. And it's okay that you say that out loud and that you find it hard. Yeah, in times of uh, where family are struggling, something I, I realized recently uh, with losing a member of my family in the last mm. week. Oh, sorry. It, it, mm. Yeah, I appreciate it. But it's, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? And, and it really makes you realize that there are a lot of positives to be drawn from this situation. Uh, the family get together, everything gets dropped, work gets dropped. It's like, nope, that can wait. And it, I think these times really, yeah, really bring what's important to the forefront. And it, it's almost, we have these little reminders in life, I think, that come along and go, wait, um, if you're working quite hard, just remember why you're doing this. Just remember who who you're doing it for, um, why you do it because you enjoy spending time with those people. So, it's uh, I think sometimes we just need those things to come up and just say, "Hey, we're over here. Don't forget about us," because this is exactly this is what life really is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think also think you know the pandemic has also done that in some ways because it's it's forced distance as well. It's forced closer like smaller families to stay together but but extended families or or sort of friendship families if you like it's it's been more difficult to have that contact and I think some things I think that happen in life are a reminder that you know it, it it's okay to see what's important and to learn to let go of those things that maybe get a priority but don't really need the priority that they're given yeah because yeah, it can, can become, like we talked about, another form of escapism almost, couldn't it? Like you can escape in your work, but in fact, what you're doing is ignoring the things that need to be dealt with. That actually leads into really is about addiction, because I think that really, escapism and addiction, I think are two things that are very intertwined. Really looking at your past experience with addiction and the, the current issues around addiction uh, have those things stayed fairly constant have they increased um and also 
what types of addiction would you work with? Hmm. It's a tricky one. I think addiction is going up. It's difficult to know whether they're going up or whether they're just more apparent. My feeling is that they're getting worse, that addiction is getting worse. I think in the lockdown, a lot of people possibly self-medicated through alcohol, drugs, um, and eating disorders are getting worse because of the pressures that, you know, that it put on some people being indoors or then coming out of lockdown. So addiction, uh, eating disorders, I was also classed sort of within that category. Um, but it's also about connection. And, you know, a, a lot of addictive behaviours are because of a fear of connection or because it's difficulty to connect with people there's a you know but also I mean it's so complex and so complicated and it's also to do with fear and shame and you know guilt and they're multi-layered you know addiction is multi-layered eating disorders are multi-layered and I think there's no there's no quick fix if you like with an addiction or an eating disorder but this a holistic approach tends to be better um, but I would say I mean it's I wouldn't want to make like a statistical <laughs> statistically significant there has been a change but I would say my feeling would be that um, addiction's gone up do you think that's also down to wanting to control a situation so lo looking back in my past getting obsessed with food around training for example I mean I think anyone who's being heavily into their training at some point has overcounted things or micromanaged things I, I can see that as sort of like a milder form of um, addiction but equally things like bulimia and anorexia do you think all of those are like because I want to control the situation here because I can't control another situation or a thought process or a feeling and emotion yeah so it definitely can be that's what I mean about it being modulated often there is an element of that it's, and also it's a distraction so it's a control and a distraction so if I'm hyper focused on this even though it hurts and I don't necessarily like it, it means that I don't look at all of this other stuff that is too difficult for me to deal with. Um, and then there's, you know, it starts off as it's okay, it's a like, it's a welcome distraction, and maybe you get some positive feedback from doing that thing, you know, maybe people say, oh, you look great, or oh, you know, you're looking amazing, at the and, but then it kind of becomes an over-focus, and then can get worse and worse and worse. So I'd say control is often certainly part of it, but there's always more to it. There's always, you know, that's what I mean around, you know, it's it's not necessary. In milder forms, you know, it can sometimes be straightforward, you know, but when it when it intensifies and after a long period of time, it's often multi-layered and there's quite a lot there. Would, I mean, are there certain types of therapies that respond better within, say, addiction as opposed to other types of mental health, whether it's like post-traumatic stress, are there different types of therapies you would utilize more so with, with these different ones yes I, I mean well yes and no I think every modality could be beneficial I think just you know for example addiction and eating disorders often you know a, a multi-professional approach is quite helpful um, because I think it's often too much for just one one therapist you know often you need more you need a bit more than just for example one therapy session once a week and even though there might be therapeutic styles that are more helpful a blended approach might be you know I, I've often work with other colleagues when working with people who have addiction and we work in 
you know, my my way as a, as a CBT therapist is quite active directive, it's called. So so it is about what can we do between sessions? How can we work? It's quite problem focused. It's quite, not always, but it can be. But then I might work alongside someone else that's more doing like a counselling role where the, where it's a space to talk. And that might be in addition to a group support. You know, so so there's lots of things I think that can be helpful. I think for trauma again, like there are certain things that are probably recommended under you know the nice guidelines, um, <laughs> but that doesn't mean they're the only things that are going to be beneficial. So there is CBT for trauma, there's EMDR, but then there's also a lot of other therapies, you know, that that are going to be helpful for a person. So I don't think it's necessarily a one size fits all. Could you explain EMDR as well, just just for people that wouldn't know? EMDR, do you know, I think I can't even remember what, EI movement desensitization regulation, maybe? I don't, you need to check that. But really, I don't, I haven't been trained in EMDR. I, it's one of those things that as a CBT therapist, you're always like, should we, should we do EMDR? I probably should do a course in EMDR. I haven't done it yet because I do CBT for trauma, but it's, um, I don't know a huge amount about the science behind it, I will be honest, but it's a it's a therapy that uses light therapy. So it uses a flashing light and then a person talks about certain memories and with the light it sends, because memories with trauma get stored in a particular part of the brain, but they get stored in a very sensory part of the brain and they need to be moved to a more contextual part of the brain where they can be accessed like normal memories. And processed, yeah. Yeah, and EMDR, the research I think is finding that with the light it helps it to move into that part of the brain without having to necessarily go through the narrative process that you would go to go through if you were doing CBT yeah it's incredible so, and I work it is really incredible and it's one of those things that I think I will do at some point because I think it's just another thing that you can another way that you can help I, I see some people that have had EMDR and then they come for this but the EMDR is always helpful um and for some people, it's all they need. It's Yeah, it's really, really quite clever. All of those things I, I find absolutely fascinating, especially the more I look at things like how sunlight is so beneficial to, to the human body and how we only absorb it through the retina and how that can change uh, how circadian rhythm affects depression. And because you talked earlier about um, how self-esteem was generally higher like people were more happy in the summer, which we know has general general effects from D3, uh, more movement, uh, more time outdoors, all of these these different things that are somewhat disconnected. I think this last year has really helped to glue these things together and make them more mainstream, which is which is fantastic as well. It's really good. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because it's all people could do, wasn't it? Go out for a walk. And so everybody went out for a walk. <laughs> but I think in doing that, it's really, really helped people to recognize the benefits of getting outdoors and spending time moving your body, being outside, no matter what the weather. I think, you know, I think another thing that lockdown brought was that people wanted to get out, even if the weather wasn't good. Whereas I think previously people were like, oh, you know, I don't want to go out. I'm all crazy, but so desperate to get out because we've been locked in all day. It's like, I don't care. I can just wrap up warm and go outside and feel the benefits of that. Also, we've noticed as, as a company and also some of my own work, getting people in cold water has been so beneficial. And um, what we've tended to see is that the people who are more resistant to doing so-called mindset work or whatever it might be, like actually dealing with that all forms of uh, contemplation, meditation. When you get them into the cold water, 
they've had to be very absorbed in the process because you do not have a choice. You are freezing cold and your mind is completely with the process. Obviously, like anything, the more you get accustomed to something, the more you need to maybe start to find something new to stimulate that same response. But equally, the benefits of being accustomed to something and still trying to get back to that introspective viewpoint uh, is something that it talks about it through meditation practices I've done in the past. You might be there for three, four hours and it's like, just sit and see what comes. Just you don't, don't react. Just let it float past. Let it just be part of the process. And that has huge value. I found, I found it very beneficial, especially when my mind was reactive to trauma. It became more of a passive process. I sort of used to see these things on clouds float past me as opposed to getting hit by the car in the middle of the road. Yeah. Exactly. And I think you, you've, it sounds like you've learned, yeah, you've learned how to respond rather than just react on the feeling or the emotion or the immediate vision or flashback or whatever that comes up. And I think you're right. It sounds like you've got there through these holistic ways. And I think so many of these things, they, they all sort of overlap as well. You know, what I find in psychology is that you go into different domains and actually we all end up doing very similar things. We just, have a different way of maybe a different language or a slightly different way of getting to that point but really we're all doing the same thing you know and I I think that with you know I've done different psychology courses you know existential humanistic psychodynamic and I think kind of feels like we're all doing the same thing we just call it different things (laughs) (laughs) it is do you know what it's so refreshing to hear that as well because I find and I'm sure many other practitioners and coaches find the same in a movement culture um we are effectively it's why again we come back to the name of the podcast which was human first because i tended to find that everything seemed to come back when you go deep enough on something you tend to find it always seems to come back to the same basic attributes or principles or life principles and it's the same in movement whether you use a certain tool to communicate a certain principle it doesn't matter you could find uh, a form of like introspection through running yet someone could find it through cycling, to to put it in more basic terms. Or you could deal with an attribute of the ability to absorb load. You could do that from jumping off a plyometric box or playing football or basketball. It it wouldn't matter, but you're always coming back to the same things. But because we see a different uh, course name or sport at the front end of it, People go, oh, this is different. You're like, no, 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 no. It's the same things yeah. in a different box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I had that on so many of my CPD courses. You know, you have to do these continuing professional developments. I'm like, yes, this one looks really exciting. It's, it's really interesting. I can't wait to see about this. And then I go and I'm like, ah, oh, feels like I'm just learning about that. You're just calling it something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Got the got the tick in the box and that's brilliant. There's another course done. So CBT, would you be able to just briefly explain like how that would work for someone, especially if someone feels like it would be beneficial to them? Yeah, sure. So um cognitive behavioral therapy then it's it's a therapeutic approach that looks at the situations that people find themselves that 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 create the feeling. So and the theory is that you know, situations don't make us feel a certain way for no reason. They make us feel a certain way because of the way that we interpret that situation, which is how we think, and then what, how we act on that situation through our behaviours, what we do. So so the therapeutic approach is about, you know, for example, if we're suffering with anxiety, it's looking at our thoughts about situations that make us feel anxious. 
our thoughts related to the situation, but also the thoughts that we have in our head that are based on things that we've experienced earlier on in our lives and how we make sense of situations, then what we do about that, how that makes us feel physically um, and how that makes us feel emotionally. And then it works on the four areas of thoughts, feelings, physical symptoms and actions. And week by week, bit by bit, we kind of pull things apart and try to work on, you know, thinking, seeing things from alternative perspectives or doing things differently to see if we do things differently. Do we get a different, um, do we feel differently? Do we get a different reaction? We find ways of managing our emotions that maybe, you know, through coping strategies that are healthy that we're not, that we haven't tried before. Um, and we work on the physical sensations as well, like, you know, for example, trying to find ways to downregulate the system if we're getting very anxious or trying to find ways to increase motivation if we're very depressed. Um, so it really, it uses past experiences, but it uses past experiences to inform how that's uh, affecting our day-to-day life with the present, with the problem that we're presenting with. So um I mean, I love working in the CBT model. I think sometimes it's got a bit of a bad rep because I think sometimes people think it's about changing the way that we think or saying that it's all about positive thinking or, you know, if we could just think about something differently, life would be so much easier. Like, well, yeah, but it's very hard to think about something differently. And there's a reason why we think about things in the way that we do. So it's not about shaming the way that we currently see things or the way that we currently do things. It's about understanding why and how and what we might be able to do differently if we're stuck in a pattern of feeling a way that we don't like feeling. So you're also drawing attention to the way people are living now is is, is down to a collection of thoughts that we've probably accumulated through life and different um, ways ways in which we act, which again, people probably wouldn't relate to to things. I, it's actually made me think of a few things as you were talking about that there is, I was told years ago um, about, obviously what we think, what we say and what we do are in, when, when they're in line, then you have peace. And it tends to be, we tend to think things, not say it or do it because we're scared of what people think. Um, but I found the more that those different things line up um, and, and whether that meant a lot of background work, maybe that took 10 years. Um, those things really started to help in, in the long run as well. CBT is really interesting. Actually, I'd like to look into that more. It's something I'm really keen to explore. Um, I think a lot of people could benefit from that. I'm sure you've seen hundreds of people that have. Hugely, yeah, hugely. I think I, I think that's partly why I love what I do because, you know, I don't think any job is truly altruistic. Yes, I like helping people, but I get it's a nice feeling when you see that you really help people and that it it really does change lives, and it's really you know really quite straightforward stuff and I I see it as almost like problem solving it's it's sort of um doing puzzles like trying to help someone understand their worldview you know I feel like I'm doing my job well if I really understand why a person feels the way they feel in a particular situation based on how they see things and why and it's not about judging that it's just about understanding it and if I can understand it as a therapist, then I can say, well, what are we not seeing in this picture that might be helpful to see? And if we can see what we're not seeing, and sometimes we don't see those things just because we're not wired to, you know, if you're, if we're wired, for example, to, I don't know, say, I don't know, always, always put other people's needs before your own, always be nice to everyone all of the time. 
you know, yes, there's a lot in that that's beneficial. Like it's it's good to try and do things for others, but there's a, there's also a message in there that my needs don't matter. And if my needs don't matter, then if I do anything for myself, that's not okay. That means that I'm selfish or greedy or a bad person or, you know, so as life goes on and things get more and more complex and families and work and actually these rules start to get quite tricky and can mean that I often feel bad about things that maybe I don't need to feel bad about. Well, looking after yourself, like you said, it's, 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 it's one of those, I've talked about this with a few other people before, it's like you almost need that selfish, selfish, unselfish perspective where you do a little bit of work for yourself in order to give to others. Because if you haven't done the work in the first place, you're actually providing less value to the people around you that you're trying to support. Exactly. You can't pour from an empty cup. No. You know, and and I think that's really what, that's what, yeah. I mean, that's an example, but yeah, that's really how the therapy works. It's just, and, but because we're not, we haven't been wired, if you like, if we look at our brains as being hardwired as an adult, we haven't been wired to be able to see these things. So it's not as though we're deliberately doing these things because I'm a martyr and I just want to do it. It's because actually we just don't see that there's an alternative. And if we, we have to then train our brains to see the alternative, to see the information coming in that we're just not wired to see. And then if we if we learn how to deliberately pay attention to that, what it looks like, we recognize, oh, okay, so the way that I see things actually isn't the full picture. It's almost like changing the lens on a camera, isn't it? From like a narrow view to a wide angle or, or changing it to a long exposure, whatever it might be, in order to, to see or change the viewpoint. And it's very easy to become tunnel visioned on something, especially if you're very committed or, or um, engrossed in that particular task. If you've always looked in one direction, I've said about the value of a coach before is that I've been taught that sometimes a coach, all they do is turn your head, like make you look somewhere else and say, have you thought about this process? That value is priceless. And that, that to me is something I had uh, with one of my teachers. He basically said, just, just explore that. And he, he left me with that concept for a year, go and explore that and then get back to me. And that was so valuable. Joe, I don't want to keep you too long because I know you've got uh, you're you're a busy lady and you've got other things to shoot off to and uh, obviously a family as well. I do. Um, I hope you, you might be able to hear them. I can hear them. It's all in good. The I'm, background. I'm I don't sure, know if it's being picked up. I'm sure parents <laughs> everywhere are laughing, thinking, "Yeah, this is exactly." I think they're having a water fight out there. <laughs> good on them. That's how it should be. That is exactly how it should be. Um, so to finish every podcast, I'm keen to leave the listeners with some simple routines that they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. What principles would be at the top of your list, and obviously those that you um, those that you work with, to form the foundations of human health, or in other words, a human first approach? Oof, what would I say? I would say probably I would say well a few things. I, it's very hard to say one or two. I would say slow the pace of life down, um, and don't feel bad about saying no. I'd say learn to say no more often, and learn to recognize that saying no is okay um i'd say spend lots of time outdoors moving your body um have regular breaks um and practice having a present mind focus and i think 
you know, the combination of all of these things for me personally and for the people that I work on, you know, these are kind of the foundational things that I would always be looking at, you know, how balanced is a person's life? How much of their time are they spending on themselves as well as other people and their work? How, um, how okay are they with prioritizing their needs as well as other people's and learning to say no without feeling bad about that? And how present are they? How able are they to enjoy each moment that life presents in that moment because ultimately that's all we've got so i'd say that's probably my top tips that's brilliant thank you so much joe for joining me today um i know how busy you are so it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on here and hopefully we can get you back again at some point it'd be really interesting to dive into a few more concepts around um mental health and that sort of stuff i'd love to i'd really love to thank you i really enjoyed the chat thank you all the best joe Thank you. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to episode eight. For more information on where to find Joe or for more information regarding any form of mental health assistance, please check out the show notes where you will find links to a range of different establishments that may be of use to you. I'm pleased to announce that Human First podcast is now sponsored by Ape Nutrition. To find out all about their products, check out episode seven and to save 10% on all orders, head to apenutrition.co.uk using the code HUMAN that is H-U-M-A-N at the checkout. If you enjoyed the podcast, please support us by subscribing, rating or commenting and I will see you on episode 9.